God paid for your redemption with his own life. And all of humanity piled up together, all of creation piled up together, everything in the universe piled up together does not even begin to tip the scale of worth if Jesus is on the other side. What does it look like for God to seek? It means he pays whatever price it takes to redeem the lost. Thank you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Jesus is better than anything, and Jesus is better than everything. That it's all about him, that life, the fullness of life, true joy, true peace, true fulfillment is found only and solely in Jesus. You can try to fill your life up with anything else you want or everything else you want, and it will not be as good as Jesus. This is Sozo Church. In these verses in Colossians, Paul kind of drawing us back to the point of everything, drawing us back to the message, drawing us back to Christ, drawing us back to the church, drawing us back to the the plan and the purposes of God in the earth. And so this morning, I'd like to do that. I've, I've heard it said before that the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. I, I remember sitting in a leadership training with, with Pastor Andy Stanley from Atlanta, and, and he, he says there's three primary things that, uh, that can, can distract us from, from, from mission, from vision, from purpose. If you're a business owner, maybe these things will help. Uh, three things. First is success, right? We, we succeed, and it's really easy in the face of success to kind of forget what we're really doing. We just get excited about things going well, and we kind of forget what's happening, and we lose sight, and we fail. The second thing he said was failure, can take our eyes off of the mission. We, we try something, we step out, and we try something new because it's gonna make the vision happen. It doesn't work, and it doesn't work, and we try something else, and it doesn't work, and eventually we, we lose sight of, of why we're doing things because they, things just don't seem to be working. Anybody ever experienced that before? Anybody ever had a diet? I mean, an eating plan? They're not diets anymore. An eating plan, and you fail, so you just, like, you fail because you, you eat a little bit too much, and so you just decide why not eat the whole tub of Haagen-Dazs? Me too. So success, failure. The third thing surprised me. He said, so if you succeed, it takes your eyes off the vision. If you fail, it takes your eyes off the vision. And if you're alive, it takes your eyes off the vision. (laughs) Everything in between of success and failure. We leak vision. It's it's hard to to keep the main thing the main thing. It's easy to forget these things. So in the face of, of a year celebrating God's faithfulness and goodness, I want to just take a few minutes here and talk briefly um, about what is, what is really going on here. This is Sozo Church. Let's take it backwards. Let's start with church. This is a church. Shock anybody? Glad there's no gasps there. Yeah, this is a church. We are a church. What the heck do we mean when we say church? Well, we, we see in this text, Paul refers to us as the body, the body of Christ. Jesus is our head. We are the body. Let me just take that as simply as I can. We belong to Jesus. The head that's on your shoulders is the head that owns your body. This isn't, this isn't anything new or revelatory, okay? It's okay. 
We belong to Jesus. He, he built us. He designed us. He, he bought us back when we sold ourselves into slavery to sin. He is our God. He is our King. He, come on, owns us as a church. We say it this way around here a lot. Jesus is the senior pastor. He's the one that runs things. He's the one that sets things up. Now, before I get too into this, I want to make sure we understand when I'm talking about church, we're talking about believers, not buildings. We're a church, not because we meet in a church building, but we're a church because we are a body of believers. Now, why do we understand that we have people here in varying degrees of that journey? I'm not talking about that, but the church that is the church is a bunch of people. Now, here's where the tension comes for us. We choose to embrace the reality of the fact that the church is simultaneously an organism, meaning us people, and an organization. There is leadership. There is structure. Jesus, Jesus designed it that way. There's all kinds of books in here telling us how we're to structure and lead. We have elders and deacons and staff and people that, that, that come along and that decisions have to be made and people have to steward over things. And we don't say, well, that's not really spiritual or the church. I can tell you in all honesty, when we gather together as elders, a vast, a lot of our time, I don't want to say a majority because I think that would be lying, but a, 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 a large portion of our time is just spent praying and interceding, seeking God. Because we, we have this weird conviction here. We, we, we believe that if we spend time and hear God and just do what he tells us to do, then what we do will be blessed by him rather than us coming up with really good ideas and having to spend hours begging him to bless our good ideas. Might I suggest for all of us, that's a better way to live your life. If you're confused about how to live your life, he wrote you a letter. Um, Remember a college student coming to me once and going, I don't know what God wants me to do. I handed him his Bible and I said, do everything that God told you to do in here and I guarantee you when you run out of stuff, he'll give you something new. (laughs) Kid looked at me a lot like most of you are looking at me. Um, We're a church, we're a body of believers. I I think it's important though for us to kind of grab something here. The word church um, was not a word that Jesus coined. Do you realize Jesus named his, his people the church? But he didn't coin that phrase. It was a modern phrase. We, we get the name church uh, from this passage. Uh, first place it shows up in the Bible, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. It says, and I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On this rock, I will build my church. That word church, and for a lot of you, this is all review. It's okay if it is. That word church is the Greek word ekklesia. Everybody say ekklesia. It just sounds, don't you feel smarter speaking Greek? Um, Ekklesia was not a word that Jesus made up. He didn't just like, and on this ekklesia. That was a word that his disciples would have known. In, In contemporary time, it was used for sort of what we maybe would call a city council or a congress. It, it means directly a called out people. But, but what we need to realize is it's a called out people for a purpose. They had the purpose of ruling and reigning over a city, of enforcing the dominion of the kingdom that they were a part of in that city. They didn't so much have authority on their own, but they submitted to the authority of the land and, and made sure that that authority was enforced in that city. When Jesus says he has a church, fundamentally, he's saying we have a purpose. There's a reason why he called us out. We, we talk about, oh, the church, the called out ones. Yes, but called out for a purpose. 
There's a reason we are a body. There's a reason we are left here. I've said this for years. If Jesus did not have a purpose for you on the earth today, you would cease to exist. That conviction for me comes from the fact that I don't believe we serve a God that wastes anything. So if he's investing air in you, you still have a purpose. You don't know what I did last night. You're right, but you're still breathing. So you still have a purpose. If not, he would take the air back. You would suffocate. (laughs) It's horrible. (laughs) We have a purpose. So that brings us to this idea of purpose. What's our purpose? Well, can I propose to you that the name that we have named our church is our purpose? Sozo. Walking backwards through our statement, this is Sozo Church. Church, we're the called out people. We are God's body. We belong to Jesus. We were bought by Jesus. We bow our knee to Jesus. So what kind of church? We're a church on mission. We're a church that believes we were left here for a purpose. We were left here for a mission. And that mission, we believe, is the same mission that Jesus had. If we are the body of Christ, follow me here. If we're the body of Christ and, and we need to find our purpose, might we find our purpose in our head, Jesus? Can I propose to you that Jesus' purpose in coming is not fuzzy, is not unclear, and is not up for debate. He said what his purpose was in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking once again, for the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. We don't get to write Jesus' mission statement. How many people are happy about that? He told us why he came. Well, I thought Jesus came to do miracles. No, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Well, I read a book and it said that Jesus came to show me the good life. You wasted your money. Jesus said he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Well, I thought Jesus came to be a good teacher. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He said it. I didn't make this up. It's in Luke, not Mark. Glad y'all are all awake. (laughs) Jesus has a purpose. He set his purpose. We get our purpose from his purpose. Jesus came. You need to understand this. He's the incarnation. He's easiest way I can put incarnation. I don't have a lot of time to go here. Again, this is review. This is a football, right? This is review. Incarnation means that God came and put skin on came and he walked among us. He was with Jesus, came. Son of man, came. He's, he came. And he came with a purpose, to seek and to save. Now, I believe before we can understand what seek and save means, we need to understand this concept of lost. Have you ever stopped and tried to define words? It's a big part of my job, is trying to define what the Bible is saying to us. I don't believe my job is to come up here and just ramble on about my opinions. Uh, I believe my job is to open up the word and try to teach us from that word. And, and part of of that is helping us understand the word. So lost is sort of an ambiguous word, if you really think about it. What I mean by that is we use it for a lot of different things. So I thought, well, I'll go to Greek and that'll help. It didn't at all. The Greek word is just as ambiguous as as English. Do you understand what I mean by that? Lost. Two sentences you've said before, probably, or at least I've said before. I lost my keys. I lost my grandma. I lost them in very different ways. Hello? I did not lose my grandma in the same way I lost my keys. 
So what do we mean by log? When Jesus says he came to seek and save that which is lost, what do we mean? Three ways I define lostness. Lostness is blindness to the goodness of God. We say someone is lost, we need to understand they are blind to the goodness of God. I stand up here week in and week out and try to convince you that Jesus is better than anything and Jesus is better than everything. That it's all about him, that life, the fullness of life, true joy, true peace, true fulfillment is found only and solely in Jesus. You can try to fill your life up with anything else you want or everything else you want and it will not be as good as Jesus. Lostness is blindness to the reality of that. See, it's not just that I don't want it. I can't even see it when I'm lost. I can't even see God as good in the lost state of my heart. I don't see him that way. I'm blind to it. Lostness is blindness. Secondly, lostness is deadness. It's being dead spiritually. God warned us that when we sin, when we choose our way instead of God's way, when we choose that what we know to be good and we choose our isolation and our separation and our independence rather than submission and and surrender to him, we die inside. Lostness is blindness. Lostness is deadness. This last one is you're you're not going to like me anymore. Lostness is to be under the just wrath of God. Not a popular topic anymore. God, we, 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 you know, I know you all took a Bible is lit class in college from a long-haired hippie who told you that the God of the Old Testament was angry, but then he like, grew up and got into the New Testament. And he's really happy and he pets sheep and he has feathered hair. <laughs> Not true. Here's what we lose when we forget the wrath of God. We forget that the same, the very same God who justly has wrath for those who have sinned. It's the very same God who chose to intervene against that wrath to redeem us. It's important for me that we don't abandon wrath because it it, it diminishes the love of God. When we abandon wrath in some attempt to try to make God more loving, we actually make him less loving. So, blind, so lostness, we understand lostness, it's, it's, it's blindness, it's deadness, and it's being under God's wrath. I believe the better we understand lostness, the better we will understand the magnitude of what it means for Jesus to seek and to save that which is lost. So let's, let's look at that, seek and save. He says he seeks, I'm going to shock some people, we are a seeker-sensitive church. I'm dead serious. We just know who the real seeker is. Because Romans tells us that no people are seeking after God. God is seeking after people. So we're sensitive to the seeker, the seeker, Jesus, who is seeking after those who are lost. How does God, what does it mean when Jesus says he's seeking those who are lost? My brain goes instantly to Luke chapter 15. We're not going to go there because I don't have enough time. But Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us uh, three accounts of three lost things. He tells us, He tells us the story about the lost sheep, about a lost coin, and about a lost son. And I believe in these stories, we see how God seeks. He tells us the story of of, of a shepherd with a hundred sheep, and one of those sheep being, we don't use the word stupid in my house, so silly. Sheep are silly. It has been said that sheep follow their stomach. A sheep is pretty much a Q-tip, with legs and a stomach. 
So when God calls you a, a, us his sheep, it's not a term of, of honor. <laughs> sheep desperately need a shepherd. Sheep cannot exist truly without a shepherd because they are Q-tips with legs. And they'll literally follow their stomach. It, it's, I've talked to shepherds who have, who've raised sheep and they'll, they just eat the grass that's in front of them. And if the grass kind of goes over here, there are stories of, of, of sheep literally falling off cliffs because they're just following their stomach. And so Jesus tells this story about 99 or 100 sheep and one of them goes off. And as the good shepherd, that shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Leaves comfort, leaves security. I mean, really, I remember the first time I read this as a believer, I was like, dude, that, that, is, a, that is an irresponsible shepherd. You have 99 sheep to tend to. If that one silly sheep wants to march himself off a cliff, let him do it. No, God in his love says, I know you did this to yourself. I know this is your choice. I don't care. And he comes and he seeks. I don't know what seeking is like. It's leaving the 99 and going after the one so that he can bring that one back and the 99 can be 100 again and be whole. Next, he talks about a, the lost coin. This one boggles my mind. As I studied this out this week, it boggles my mind. I, could, I look forward to the day where I will be allowed to preach on this longer because this is a woman, she has 10 coins. She loses one of them in her house. And the Bible says, it, 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 apparently from what Jesus is saying here, it's nighttime because it's dark in her house. We know this because it says that she lights all of the lamps in her house. She turns on all the lights and she, she, up, she completely puts her house into upheaval, sweeps out her whole house, takes apart her whole house, tips things over, pours things out, sweeps it all until she finds the one. This is what blows my mind. We need to understand oil was not cheap in that day. The woman probably, if, I'm gonna, if I stop and think about this, spent more money burning the oil than the one coin she was looking for. Can I tell you, God paid more for you than you're worth? Don't miss that, please. The price that God paid to redeem you and to redeem me is worth more than you and me. It's worth more than you and me and all of the world combined because God paid for your redemption with his own life and all of humanity piled up together, all of creation piled up together, everything in the universe piled up together does not even begin to tip the scale of worth if Jesus is on the other side. What does it look like for God to seek? It means he pays whatever price it takes to redeem the lost. He leaves, he searches. Last, we hear the story. It's probably the hardest for me of the lost son. I, I knee-jerk back when we call it the prodigal son or the lost son because really, there's three main characters in the story. There's two brothers and a dad. There's a, there's a rebellious brother, there's a religious brother, and then there's a faithful father, and yet we give title credit to the stupidest one of all of them. If I could have my way, we would read it silliest. Sorry. None of my kids are in the room. Leave me alone. Um, we, give, we give title credit to, to the son when the father is the hero of the story. He's the only one that is not utterly jacked up. But what, what do we learn about the seeking God from that? It, we learn that God is willing to let us go through whatever silly, happy now, rebellion we have to go through come to our senses and realize the loving and the faithful and the generous God that we have. 
Want to know what seeking looks like? It looks like leaving the 99 and going after the one. Looks like investing whatever we have to find the lost. And it means watching and waiting as we know those who are running away from a God who loves them and cares for them. Which leads us to the last word. We understand what the lost are. We understand what seeking is. But he didn't just come to seek. He says he came to save. To seek and to save that which is lost. I think for too long as believers, we've been good with seeking, but we have not been good at proclaiming salvation. Seeking to save that which is lost. This verse is one of two verses, the second of which I am not going to read, because if I do, we will be here all morning. Where we got our name. That word saved in Greek is... Come on, it's an open book test. It's in your bulletin. You read it when you came into the building. Sozo. Greek word means to save. No, I'm not a big Led Zeppelin fan. I am, but that's not the name of our church. Um, Sozo, to seek and to save that which is lost. I believe if we have a purpose, our purpose needs to be the same purpose that Jesus had, and Jesus' purpose was to save the lost. Now, please hear me. We are not a savior. Real happy about that? I'm, I'm excited I don't have to be crucified to save people. Jesus did that already. But our message is his message, the message of salvation, the word Sozo in Greek, we simplify it by saying it means to heal, save, and redeem. And when we do that, to be honest, we sort of neuter the meaning because this is the mission, not just to seek, but to save. To, to, to save, the word sozo really means to redeem back, to bring back to wholeness, to restore back to innocence. It's a word, it's really weird. When I started seeking it out in, one of the ways I try to study Greek is not to just read all the places in the Bible that it's mentioned, though I would encourage you to do that for this word, but I also try to find it in, in, and at the time in contemporary Greek, and here's the weird thing about the word sozo, it appears very little in contemporary Greek because it was an impossibility. There's other words that mean to save. This one was not used as much because the, the best analogy that I heard <clears throat> for this was, imagine if you were to stand in front of a judge and be, be um, found truthfully, honestly, guilty. You're guilty. The judge finds you guilty. The court finds you guilty. Now, there's this idea of, of the judge now, God now pronouncing you innocent because of what somebody else did, and that's certainly a major part of our redemption. But there's another piece to this word sozo. It literally means if that judge had the ability to go back in time and make you innocent, that's sozo. Doesn't just mean to, to, to save or to be found innocent. It means to be restored back to genuine wholeness and innocence. If you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to turn here. This, to me, is, is the picture of how that happens. And I believe a very important word for us as a church, and this is where we will eventually land. First Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. Uh, familiar character to the Bible. His name is David. Yeah, the David that killed the giant. 
uh, same David as this. David will, will later become king uh, of Israel. At this time, he is running from Saul, who is the present king of Israel, because David's anointed to be the king of Israel, and Saul is jealous. And so we pick up the story. I don't have time to give us too much context. I don't think it's really important other than understand David's running for his life at this moment. And it says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abulam. And when, his, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone, catch this please, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Worst church plant launch team ever. David is building an army and God brings to him everyone who is distressed. That word literally means those who life has not given options. The word in, the, in, in Hebrew here, by Old Testament is written in Hebrew, literally is, is the idea of this like a narrow passageway. Anybody ever gone hiking up in the mountains and had to kind of squeeze through little passageways to kind of keep going? That's the idea here. That distressed is these people who life has just closed in on. Distressed, those who are in debt. Debt, none of you know what it is. Hello, come on. Debt is debt. It means literally debt. It means to owe somebody something. But in this culture, what it literally meant was your life was on the line to this person. And then bitter in soul. Some translations say discontent, people that life had just lost all joy and meaning. Can I tell you, I don't have time to unpack this for you too much, but I believe that's a perfect picture of what sin does in our life. We're born into a situation, we have no real choice other than to sin, which only leads us further into the bondage of that sin, into its debt. And then as we're in that debt, life gets sucked of all of its joy which only then gives us less choices, which causes us to go further into debt, which causes even more joy to be sucked out of our life. And it's this spiral that just sends us down. And in the midst of all of that, these people hear about David. Now, let me clarify. David is me, the pastor. Thank you for laughing. I'm afraid a few of you believe me. No, let me explain how to read the Old Testament. Find the hero... You don't get to be him. So you pastor for 12 years, and I preached so many messages about, be the David to your generation, slay the giant. No, you wanna know who you are, you, me, you and me get to be in the story of David and Goliath? We get to be the Israelites who are hiding behind the rocks, wetting themselves, <laughs> hoping for a savior. Jesus is the hero. You and I all get to play supporting roles. We have our king. We have our commander. His name's Jesus. Who's it all about? Jesus. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So here we see David, two people actually, two types of people actually gathered to him. His family, those who bore his name and his nature. And I wish I could find a nicer word for this. I promise you I tried. I even looked in the Thethorath. Being a preacher, they had to start with the same letter. His family and a bunch of failures. I mean, really, that's what they were. 
Here's the amazing thing about what David did. David becomes commander over them. That word literally means that they submitted to him as king. Is there a better picture of salvation than submitting to Jesus as king? We got a mess. We got nothing to offer. These guys, it wasn't like they came to David going like, hey, I know we're kind of a wreck, but... No, they had, they had no but except for their butt. They, they, <laughs> these were not guys that added to David in any way. And yet... They come to him, and within chapters of the Bible, David turns these men into his famous mighty men of valor. See, mighty men of valor didn't come to David. People who were distressed and in debt and bitter of soul came to David. And David turned those men into mighty men of valor so that we don't even hear them connected to being distressed and in debt and discontent anymore. We just hear them as mighty men of valor. You want to know what Sozo looks like? It looks like coming to Jesus, not with your chest puffed out going, hey, Jesus, I got something here you need. <laughs> no, it means coming to Jesus and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm distressed. I'm in debt. I have a debt I can't pay. It's, it sucked my life of all the joy. And the only place I know to, to go is back to the place that puts me in distress again it puts me further in debt again and robs me of joy again. I got nothing, Jesus. And he takes that life and by his grace and by his authority and by his power and by his blood and by his goodness and by his faithfulness, he transforms us into something we never, ever, ever, never, ever could have been. He makes us into his people. Can I tell us that as a church right now, I feel like the Lord had this story of David on my heart. I, I'm going to just level with you. I have more hope and more faith and more excitement about what God is doing in this house than I ever have been in any ministry I've ever been a part of. I've been doing this professionally. <laughs> um, I've been doing this for a living I feel more comfortable with saying that way. Um, for about 15 years now. And I, by me saying I'm more excited now is not an indictment on my excitement in the past. <laughs> I've been very excited about ministry in the past. I've been very excited about this church in the past, but I'm more excited now than I ever have been. And not just because I believe some amazing things are coming up. If we're gonna finish looking at this statement, this is Sozo Church. This right now. This, this group of people, look around. This group of people, and I know we got a bunch of people missing. It's fine. They miss out. <laughs> this is the called out people that God wants to use to proclaim his message of salvation to a bunch of broken, busted, disgusted people. See the city transformed. I believe God is drawing those two types of people to us right now. I, I know it because I know it practically and I believe it prophetically that, that God is drawing his family to this place. Because let's be real. Do you think David really had time to disciple 400 people? No, his family did that with him. His family transformed those people together. God, God takes those who are isolated, the Bible says, and puts them in the midst of family. I believe he's drawing his family to this place. And I believe at the same time, he's drawing those that are discontent and are distressed and are in debt to this place. 
to see transformation happen. I believe with all of my heart that God wants to use this house to change this city. Forget that. I believe God wants to use the people that he brings here to influence the people that he brings to them. See, we'll, we'll get real excited about God wants to change the city through the church. We get a slightly less excited about the idea that God wants to change those he puts in your life through your mouth. I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> then you were in the wrong line. <laughs> That's what we're about here. We, we have leveraged everything toward proclaiming the gospel to this city. People asked me when we first planted half of this church, what's your vision? What do you think God's called you to, to Spokane for? And I, I have a very small vision to preach the gospel to every single person that lives in this city. a little thing. 500,000 people. No big deal. But there's other churches. and Yep, there's other churches and we need them. Amen? But we're not going to not do our job just because there's other people on the team. That's, that, that's, you want to know the, you want to know my, but I, 500,000 people. Let's preach the God. I don't know how many are going to get saved because um, I checked this morning. I'm not God. That's a good place to say amen. amen. Especially when I'm driving on the freeway. <laughs> I'm just told to preach the gospel. Let Jesus do the work. Amen. Amen.